we go into this need to say we need to know everything at once <laughs> and we need to know communication and we need to be diplomats and we need well it's good but it's also almost impossible i think <laughs> what we need to realize is that and have the opportunities both provided by let's say your employer or where you are to take sort of executive courses or take hands-on courses and build on that skill because no one can have everything at once from the minute you graduate it's science fiction that's not possible so but this realization that it's a lifelong learning this is the public health insight podcast before we move on it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with you're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health, from the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. Hey, Gordon, what's up? What's going on, man? I'm really excited today to talk about some global health diplomacy. Global with a special health guest. diplomacy. I thought we were here to talk about public health, public health insight podcasts. Global health plays a huge role in the health of all people, and we're about the health of all people on this podcast. So mm. we got to expand our horizons. Okay. Okay. So, what would you, from an understanding perspective, too, because I'm relatively new to global health, mm -hmm. what are some of the additional considerations from a global health context that may be not as prevalent in the public health context? So I think we're just starting to realize that what goes on in different parts of the world can affect us greatly, whether it's the transmission and spread of diseases, infectious diseases, or learning about different health trends that are emerging from different countries around the world. These things can help inform what we're doing at a local level, right? Okay. So those are just a few examples of how we can have these cross-learning events with other people from all around the world. And particularly, when we're talking about global health governance, we as health people, we always love talking about health. But then when we start mingling into this realm of foreign national security, transnational security, trade policy, and how it relates to health, we start getting out of our comfort zones in a sense, right? Mm. So how do you negotiate in these settings to promote the health of others when you're talking about geopolitical interest, ideological interests, or national interests? So these are things we're often not trained as public health professionals in an MPH program. So I'm really interested in learning more about that. National security, that sounds hectic. Mm -hmm. Okay. I thought that was like a FBI and Secret Service kind of thing. Listen, There's some health stuff in there too? There's some health stuff. Everything's related to health in one way or another. Mm. So, Okay. Are you an expert in that area or are we talking to someone who can shed some light on this? I'm definitely not an expert, but I'm just a curious Don't learner. Don't sell yourself, like yourself short. Hey, you got to know where your weaknesses are and mm. know where your strengths are. And that's why here on the Public Health Insight Podcast, we bring the best of the best. Okay. So who are we talking All right. to? All right. So today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Gary Aslanian, who is currently the Manager of Partnerships and Governance at the World Health Organization Special Program on Research and Training on Tropical Diseases, otherwise known as TDR, in Geneva, Switzerland. 
Prior to joining the WHO, Dr. Aslanian was a federal public servant working with the Public Health Agency of Canada and Global Affairs Canada in Ottawa. Dr. Aslanian is also the host of the popular Global Health Matters podcast and leads its productions team. Dr. Aslanian, welcome to the Public Health Insight podcast. Hi, great to be here with you guys. We're so excited to have you. So let's start off by visualizing your career using our Google Maps analogy. Did you know that when you had initially put dentistry in your GPS, that you would end up as a leader in the field of global health? Tell us what that journey was like, and was it filled with twists, turns, or any detours? Oh, God. So you did figure out that I'm a dentist, uh, so that's <laughs> good to know. And I was going to surprise you because I thought, oh, my God, the guys probably don't even know about it. So I will just surprise them and say, hey, I'm a dental public health specialist, but you've done that part. And that's really very important. And, and, and clearly nobody, I think, knows what their career path is probably going to be. I'm working now here in Geneva in program called TDR at WHO. But my interest in global health maybe started, it's linked to that dental public health experience, but started in, of all places, in Toronto Public Health, actually. Wow. And it's telling because Toronto, it was and clearly still is a very multicultural, diverse city with very much diverse issues around health. And my sort of curiosity about global health started there. I was doing like an internship placement there and got exposed to some really experienced senior public health leaders who I'm happy to call mentors. And they worked in Toronto, but they also had um, collaborations with Brazil. They were going to Ukraine and they worked in the Caribbean. And all of that really was linked to their work in the city. And so global was really local for them. And that's where I felt I, felt I could probably look into this and start sort of being engaged in global health projects and global health overall. That's fantastic. And I guess like more into detail about you started off as a dentist. How have some of those skills translated into the leader you are today in the space as a global health professional? Right. The joke is that a lot of the work we do in public health or global health is like pulling teeth. So that actually does <laughs> come quite handy. But the, in reality, obviously, many of the people in public health have sort of the first degree in something and then they do master's mm -hmm. or they do PhD mm -hmm. or some continuing education. So it gives you kind of the clinical or biomedical background, but other things come with other training. And then, of course, the work experience comes and kicks in. When I started working for federal government, I worked for CEDA, which was at the time called Canadian International Development Agency, and then Global Affairs Canada. Now it's called in Public Health Agency. Later, it was really those experiences that shape you. Again, your training is important. But I found that many people who join global health careers through very much, very different unconventional routes. So I'm just addition to that list. And there are many people from different career paths who are aspiring to work in the global health space. And one of the main organizations that are that's front and center in global health is 
the WHO. So can you shed some light on what the organization does in the global health space? Sure. And obviously, I've been here since 2009 in Geneva, but one knows of WHO if you are engaged in public health overall in basically any country, more or less, because you at some point will be using some kind of a document or you'd be following some kind of a guideline or you'd be looking at experiences of other countries. So clearly a multinational, multilateral organization, WHO, a technical agency in public health is well known to a lot of the health people. And I had a little bit of an advantage sort of learning about WHO before joining and working here because some of the work I've done for in my work in CEDA or public health agency, I was responsible. So some parts of the relationships Canada had with the organization. So that gives you a better understanding and you learn more about it. It is a member state organization. And again, Canada is a member and so are hundred and odd number of countries meaning that they join the organization, they contribute technically and shape the, the program of the overall organization. And then they come together once a year as a World Health Assembly to agree or discuss or make decisions about global kind of trends and global health priorities. It has an additional layer that it's divided into six regional sub-organizations that are part of the organization that brings that unique regional nuance. And then, of course, the organization is also present in, in more than 140 countries as an office. So there's a physical presence. So it, at a given time, we have at least three levels of the organization with headquarters and regions and then countries and to a various degree very closely linked to the public health leadership or health system leadership in countries and shaping that jointly. So my own program though, if that kind of gives you a bit more background to it, is more research focused. So TDR is a special program that is focusing on research and training a bit more on infectious diseases or tropical diseases, a bit of an outdated term, but it's still in our name. And we're not just WHO, we're also co-sponsored by three other agencies like UNDP, United Nations Development Program, UNICEF, which is the children's UNICEF as well, and, and then World Bank. Is, uh, is also part of a co-sponsoring of our program. So that's an extremely interesting combination because the scientific and research collaboration goes beyond health. So in many places, um, issues around access and other issues are also linked to other um, sort of policies in countries that let's say UNDP plays a better role. So we work with them in that area or focusing on child health or maternal child health. That's what UNICEF comes in and then health system related stuff done with World Bank. So that's a really quite a good combination of things that is needed. But the organization WHO itself is a public health agency. 
although research or evidence production of use of it, it's in its constitution. If you go back to 1948 or whatever that was, I think it's 48. Yeah. And you'll find it there and it's part and parcel of the constitution of WHO, but it's not a research agency itself. It's a public health agency on the global level. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that and all the intricate layers and connections. And it just brings me to wonder even more about your specific role as the manager of partnerships and governance for TDR. Can you tell me a bit about your day to day and what you do for that role? Because it sounds like you're talking to a lot of people. And right. There's a lot of cross functionality involved here. Right. So it's really reflective. The governance is reflective of that special kind of co-sponsored nature of the program. So I mentioned the World Health Assembly, that is the member states of WHO. We are part of the overall program of WHO, but we also have our own board, which Mm, is composed of these agencies and also some countries or country institutions. A lot of it is research institutions in countries, let's say the Malaysian Research Council or the Nigerian Research Department or an agency in Sweden that does development. So they represent their countries, but they are more technical. So, And these organizations and these representatives really shape our program. They shape how we prioritize what we do gaps and and over 50 years the pro- or close to 50 years the program has evolved obviously and changed in its focus and prioritization so day to day because there is a lot of linkage with various stakeholders and we focus on research as i said and that research is focusing on neglected parts like malaria tb vector-borne diseases, uh, neglected tropical diseases, you know, the WHO list of neglected tropical diseases. And a lot of that comes with a layered, complex stakeholder relationship. So our technical staff that is involved with, with researchers or with public health leaders in countries, all of that goes through our very... Um, competent management of those relationships. And we're very small, but we work with about 900 people at a given wow. year, actually, around the world. Wow. So that's that's kind of complex to manage, I guess. But it's at the moment, it's even better because we're now focusing on implementation research, meaning that it's right. closer linked to public health implementation. But it also makes it more, more challenging in terms of, you know, the evidence that is produced, is in lockstep with the public health developments, or at least it's there to provide that evidence, timely shape any policies that people need to make sort of decisions around. So that's that that is quite actually exciting, but it's also more difficult to to always be in that kind of complex environment. We also have. Um, these regions that we work with, we have specific grants that we fund with them that focus on regional priorities. And that's extremely important mm-hmm. because yeah. then 
the, what comes out of that or the institutions and researchers who work on producing that evidence is really identified by the region as priority and hence have much higher probability of being used. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's one other thing. And of course, huge chunk of what we do is also capacity building and supporting the field of implementation research by supporting eight universities in Asia or in Latin America and Africa and, and providing a sort of training material and bringing that kind of coherence in implementation research globally for the use in public health, including increased number of online and virtual opportunities before pandemic, but also clearly much more now once we've gone through the pandemic and the needs have changed. No, that's that's very interesting. And one of the key things, as you, you described, what TDR does in your specific role is the need for very high skills in political acuity and being able to negotiate and have tact and diplomacy, as they say. Mm-hmm. So this... In preparing for this, one of the terms that I came across was global health diplomacy. Right. So from your experience, can you situate us in terms of what that really means, especially for someone like my help, myself who has a bit more of a public health tunnel vision and not so much what goes on on, on the outside from a global perspective? Just situate us a bit with that and why it's important. Right. So you already, we kind of covered clearly that one needs that kind of skill set or also needs to understand the sort of very complex stakeholder and complex environment you are in. So I've alluded to that through my role. And of course, when travel was a bit easier, a lot of that also includes that kind of interaction. We've tried that virtually, but hopefully will will increase and some things are clearly can be done virtually, but will increase and try to reconnect, which is very important. So diplomacy was not, for like for me personally, was not something new. I mean, when I worked for the federal government and I had to kind of negotiate for or be part of negotiating for Canada, different health issues, be that at the World Health Assembly that I mentioned, where Canada is part of, or other kind of fora. And you probably also heard other uh, diplomacy terms, and I'm sure, like science diplomacy or vaccine diplomacy or any other type in the last few years. But basically, it's a multi-level, multi-stakeholder a negotiation process that shapes and sort of global policy environment, both in health and non-health forums. So that doesn't need to be health only. So these kind of processes, they do affect health issues and determinants uh, that cross national borders. And they need to be tackled through, let's say, global agreements. So it brings different disciplines. You'd say public health that you mentioned you guys have, and many of those your listeners probably are, but also brings that need for understanding of international affairs or management or law or economics, and also understanding that some of that negotiation happens not in health fora, but it happens in, let's say, trade or environment or human rights or many other global sort of negotiation processes where health becomes uh, not the 
topic, but indirectly really is the outcome or has a, a direct link on that. And, and there is probably not one definition of global health diplomacy. And personally, I've, I've given up on defining it because it doesn't <laughs> really matter. But to me personally, it's actually quite a good, I mean, I always do this exercise in my head when I'm in those kind of situations than I did before. Maybe I do a little bit less of that because I don't really represent a country at the moment, so to say. And we are, as you know, civil servants of WHO. But I always ask myself a question, what does it mean to the health of the person? Because it's very easy to kind of lose sight in that process, in be that in Geneva or in New York or wherever that mm -hmm. process goes and where diplomats or those negotiating there spend hours and focusing on one word or on sort of one sentence of negotiation. Uh, to me, I always ask myself, okay, what does that mean to the health of the person? And maybe this kind of comes in um, sort of my oldest interest or always being very careful about making sure we strive for equity and strive for these kind of approaches that really matter to people. So that's what I use, or at least I've kept in mind when I, th when I think of global health diplomacy. So not very different from, from your approach. I really liked what you said there. It struck a chord with me talking about and keeping in center the health of the person throughout these negotiations. Now, my question is, you're talking to all these different people in this space. You're talking to people in the environmental sector, human rights sector, and all these different sectors. And there's competing interests and complex environments associated with that. Now, how do you make sure that you actually keep that, the health of the person in mind when you know people are throwing financial numbers at you, people are throwing different competing interest based on their prioritizations how do you how are you able to frame that in order to lead effective negotiations from your end right so um it is it can be difficult because we are trained in you know uh, this public health frame so one needs to understand the competing priorities of different sectors. And of course, the global health architecture has evolved so much in the last 20 years that is so complex and so, I mean, the needs have also kind of increased, although there is, there is a lot of more sort of attention to it maybe in, in terms of publicly. But I go back to, I mean, I think I learned that through the experience working for CEDA where it's a development agency, it's an international collaboration cooperation agency, but it's not a health agency. So this, um, this kind of, you need to kind of try and, and find a way where priorities, let's say, when it comes to one health of agencies that focus on environment or on animal health, and then our, in our program, we have uh, colleagues who are working on the vector-borne diseases. So how to make the priorities of those sectors see the health uh, link in the same way that is going to help them to achieve their own goal. 
So that one example, I mean, there are many, but this one example, when, when we work on one health or around vector-borne diseases with environmental or animal or agricultural sectors, the trying to understand where are the best ways to link in rather than to make what we have as number one priority, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I go back to that experience working in in non-health agencies where quickly you realize that the language you speak has to change and the and change for good because that's our language, but that's not the language of everyone around us. Yeah, I really resonate with that because I truly think that when we talk about public health, when we're talking about global health and we're talking about systems thinking and interdisciplinary approaches, you have to learn not necessarily to push public health aside, but also listen to what language other people are using and be able to communicate with them effectively to learn what they like and what they don't like and how to have conversations when there's disagreement, as Gordon Uh always likes mentioning. So we're talking about global health diplomacy, all this great stuff, useful skills to have indeed. Now, I know that you're one of the course co-directors for executive course in global health diplomacy at the University of Toronto Dalalana School of Public Health. Can you tell us a bit about why this course was created and give us a little sales pitch on it? Okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good example. So there is, I mean, clearly what was, it is like not very much understood in terms of the global health diplomacy skills or they're learned on on the go or they're learned for, especially by health or public health professionals. So even before the pandemic, as part of this adjunct faculty sort of link I have with the school, and it's obviously not my day job, I've I've tried to recommend in to them as as they've started looking at global health in a different way, in more systematic way, which was extremely exciting for me. And they've had a new center director, so and I've proposed some ideas in that process, and that was one of them. And luckily that was picked up and then the pandemic hit and we've clearly realized that, hey, there's something actually in unfolding in front of our eyes. So there was a renewed call for that kind of skill and including by Erica de Ruggiero, who is the director of the center at the school at Dalalana and and then we've pr- we've proposed that approach to beefing up the global health diplomacy capacity, and and um, as this sort of the networks that we have and the connections with different senior level or experienced public health and global health diplomacy experts, it would be extremely important to use that and bring that to learners who are interested in that um, kind of a training. And it's been launched two years ago. They had already two cohorts of learners that went through that. And very interestingly, very diverse groups of learners from, uh, let's say, a health attaché in the Ghanaian mission in Geneva, So someone works at the Ministry of Health in a country, some who work with UN agencies or international organizations, federal agencies in Canada or provincial public health or academic or NGO sector. So very diverse groups of learners who've come through that. And it's an executive course that is going to be hopefully, I think, 
in 23 already part online and part in person. So the the school, uh, the center will have it advertised on it on its website sometimes in the fall of this year for the 2023 cohort for the for the course. And it's quite interesting because the interest is, I don't know, five, six, seven fold to what what can actually be accommodated through the course. Mm-hmm. So there is no shortage of interest and it's truly global in terms of the learner mix, which is also extremely important. And for me personally, it's been extremely important to to see that actually is how that course has evolved. That's incredibly interesting as I'm reflecting on you know, my skill set, my little toolbox that I have as a public health practitioner. Uh-huh. Diplomacy is an undoubtedly something that everyone should have, especially when there's one comment you made about when we're in rooms with different industries or organizations or sectors who have an agenda or mandates where health isn't necessarily front and center. It's not necessarily about screaming from the mountaintop about the importance of health. It's getting them to see that health is a critical part of their end goal as well. And there are benefits that they can reap from putting health front and center or it's somewhere uh, having health as a consideration in their strategy or their plan helps them be, become a better organization. And that's something that I think those skills are not potentially natural for a lot of people and something that we can learn from people like yourself who've done it for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you have a very long list there that public health professionals need to have. And I think this always this um, we go into this need to say we need to know everything at once <laughs> and we need to know communication and we need to be diplomats and we need well it's good but it's also almost impossible i think <laughs> what we need to realize is that and have the opportunities both provided by let's say your employer or where you are to take sort of executive courses or take hands-on courses and build on that skill because no one can have everything at once from the minute you graduate. It's science fiction. That's not possible. So, but this realization that it's a lifelong learning and it's not Mm -hmm. just a degree. And I don't know if there is any profession that doesn't need that lifelong learning and why should public health not be? Couldn't agree more. Hear that, LaShawn? You don't have to get all your degrees before you turn. Uh... Hey, it's a, like Dr. Islanian said, it's a stepwise process as you progress through your career. Lifelong <laughs> learning. That's exactly what I'm in the pursuit of. Okay. There... <laughs> I'm glad I'm go. helping you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Slow down a bit, LaShawn. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.